Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to BespokeCast. After a nice long break for the holiday season, we are back with uh, one of my fellow Canadians. I was born and raised in Canada, and this week we've got a fun guest coming to us from Toronto. Kevin Muir, CFA, is a market strategist for East West Investment Management. You may know him better for his uh, macro newsletter with his thoughts that he sends out, uh, The Macro Tourist, which is a fun bit of self-deprecating humor for all of us uh, macro heads. And he's a very thoughtful guy, and he's he's really engaging, and we're super thrilled to have him. So, Kevin, welcome to BespokeCast. It's great to be here with you, George. I was looking through your previous guests, and am I your first Canadian? I think that's correct. Yeah, other than other than myself, um, you know, I, I live in the states now, but I was born and raised in British Columbia, so uh, always good to have a nice Canadian connection. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm looking forward to it. So before we launch into discussion, we're going to talk about some central banking news. We're going to talk about modern monetary theory. Uh, but before we get to all that, uh, it would be great to hear a little bit more about your background, uh, where you're coming from and your perspective. So um, you're from Canada originally. You're not a, you're not a transplant. No, I'm not. Um, I'm an original Canadian. I actually grew up in Winnipeg. Um, my father was uh, a research director for a firm in Winnipeg called Richardson Greenshield. So I grew up... Uh, with a lot of stock talk around the dinner table. And uh, so it was actually always something that I was interested in. It was something that I learned a lot about. And uh, he was a research analyst and eventually was the director of research. So I kind of had to do something different. So I decided I was going to be a trader from a young age. So when I was in uh, university, I actually got a job at Investor Line, which was the Bank of Montreal Discount Stock Brokerage Division. And I started doing that at night uh, while I was going to school. And next thing I knew, I was uh, taking my classes at night and uh, going uh, and becoming the manager of the whole operation for um, before I had even my degree. And was that while you were still an undergrad? That's right. That's why I was still an undergrad. I was a young guy. And uh, I realized that I was uh, all of a sudden a bank five level manager and I didn't want to do that. And I picked up and I actually got a job in Chicago in the pits because I'd always wanted to be a trader and I figured this is what I wanted to do. So I picked up, I got a job at Indo Suez in the DMARC pit. That shows you how long ago it was. Um, they traded DMARCs and I very quickly realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do either. So I, uh, I, that was my one little brief chat chance in the States and I came back to Toronto and uh, I started to think about what I wanted to do in terms of what sort of trading and uh, I was always interested in computers and one of the things that way back when this is in the early 90s it's, it's hard to believe but there wasn't a lot of computer sophistication on the desk and uh, even basic Excel skills was something that very few traders had and I was lucky enough to apply at uh, RBC Dominion Securities and I got a job on the institutional desk and what it was was um, covering all the index clients and then also um, pricing out proprietary baskets meaning like when a when a money manager would win a mandate they would often get 
um, a big chunk of cash in and they would want to put it to work in, in their portfolio, but they would want to do it in one fell swoop. So they would phone us up and they would give us a list of stocks they wanted to buy. And we had to price this out live and then give them a price. Um, and uh, believe it or not, just knowing how to put something into Excel and uh, price that out was uh, miles ahead of all the other guys on the desk. So I was lucky enough to get a job at RBCDS um, in my early 20s. And did that basket transaction, so so you would quote them the cost of putting together all the individual stocks and then doing the whole portfolio at once as opposed to like a derivative, like a total return swap or something like that? That's correct. Basket. It was just purely a cash transaction. And it was actually all the pricing was done by the uh, by my bosses in terms of they would decide how much commission or a discount to put on that basket. But just the simple fact that they couldn't get that pricing in there and they needed a young person on the desk. It was uh, it was a great opportunity for me. So I still at this point hadn't gotten my degree. Um, I asked my boss at the time, I said, do you want me to go finish my degree? He says, I don't really care. And so I, I did continue to get it at night. It took me a long time to get it. But I always figured that the degree is something you get. So you get your job on the institutional desk, not the other way around. So I kind of always figured, although my mom never forgave me for that, I always figured I did it right that way in terms of making the decision, that decision. But you did end up getting your degree. That's correct. I eventually got it. and uh, Well, so your mom can only be so mad about that, right? <laughs> that's right. And so <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to um, – it was an exciting time for Canadian banks in that if you did have the skills to do these computers, it was um, – it was a point where Toronto, the Toronto Stock Exchange was actually advanced in terms of uh, making the switch over from floor-based trading into the electronic-based trading. We had something called the CATS trading, which is computerized uh, assisted trading systems. And we were actually one of the first. So I was lucky enough to be sitting in a spot where there was a huge demand for my services in terms of the ability to trade electronically. And um, I was lucky enough to have these bosses that basically let me do whatever I want in terms of they just kind of encouraged us to do it. It was a very entrepreneurial firm. RBC DS is, uh, was kind of like the Goldman Sachs of the Canadian world in terms of it was the place where everyone wanted to go. And they were very entrepreneurial, very, very encouraging. And it was a great place to, to work. And before I knew it, kind of within a couple of years, I was a proprietary trader, not doing any kind of uh, mundane stuff for, for clients, but basically just taking risk for the bank, kind of, and that was all I did. And it was a, it was a terrific time. And is that, was that all in equity still? Yeah, so I was the equity derivative. So technically, I was the index trader, meaning I was the guy that was doing the index ARB. When the, when the futures were out of line with the cash, I would go and I would sell the futures and buy the cash or vice versa. And we would do trades like that. But um, because, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it was so entrepreneurial, they let me do different things. Like one of the things that I quickly figured out was that I could do automated trading in terms of arbitrage between the U.S. and Canada. So we figured out how to create the first interlisted arb machine where 
our computer would monitor the, the price of like let's say research in motion in canada versus the u.s and then when the two just just for folks that are newer to the markets research in motion is the stock that used to um that that's the blackberry that's stock, that's right, right so. yeah that's right it's a, <laughs> it used to be a massive stock in canada everyone had it in their retirement account and it was you know the apple of the canadian equity market but these days uh not in the headlines so much anymore sorry i just wanted to interject no problem there. completely understand um yeah it was it was a great stock and, and one of the things was because it was canadian there was a lot of like l limit orders from kind of founders and stuff selling it in the canadian stock exchange it, like just limit orders out there but the thing is the americans when they were coming for it they would come for it on the nasdaq and they would just they wouldn't even look to see if it was interlisted anywhere and so the arbitrage would just sit there and the machine would just go bing 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 like buying and buying it in canada and selling it to the americans at a higher price and so it was it was just an exciting kind of moment in history where it was kind of at the forefront of computerized trading and you know i i never ended up being a high frequency guy but we were kind of we were doing the laying the the groundwork for these sorts of trades and it was just it was a terrific place to be yeah i mean that that trade you just described which is essentially just buying high or buying low on one exchange and selling high on another exchange i mean that's all hft is i mean people don't necessarily realize that i don't think that you're just taking advantage of different um, prices in different venues. And, you know, that that actually is a useful service. Now you can make a bunch of arguments around whether it's been taken too far and whether there's now more greater cost than benefit and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, that example you just gave is that's what HFT is. You were you were one of the low frequency, high frequency traders before right. it was even a thing on the parlance in the markets. Yeah. So I, I'm not going to defend the HFT guys because I there were some strategies where the router arbitrage, I, I'm not sure whether they were really adding any benefit, you know, when they when an, when they saw an order that was at a, from a broker that was slower than them and they could just go front run it. That was I'm not sure that's really adding anything to the to the kind of marketplace. But for us, we were making prices more efficient. We were in in essence giving a better price for the American that wanted to buy research in motion, and we were also enabling the the Canadian to facilitate his sale. Yeah. So all in all, that was a win-win situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's that's the same old story. Arbitrage is a very, very old thing that goes back a very long way. And, you know, <clears throat> where we stand today with it, again, I, I think you can get pretty deep into the weeds on HFT and it becomes a lot, a lot grayer and a lot less clear. But the, the basic concept is as old as, you know, there are two people in two different places that want to do similar similar stuff on the opposite sides of the transaction, and someone needs to facilitate that. So I, that that's great. I, I had no idea you had that that sort of deep history in the um, in the in the bowels of what's become a, a very very complicated electronic market in equities, both in Canada and the United States globally, really. Um, so that that's fascinating. But you're now. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, one second. I'll just tell you one thing. The the Katsumuso. What does the fellow that actually went in and did the fancy exchange, the Flash Boy guy. What's that fellow's name again? Uh, Katz, uh, I, I can't remember. Yeah. I should know that you off know. the top of my head, but I don't. That's right. That fellow actually sat right on the desk that I that I. Oh, right. I forgot in. that he was an RBC guy. Yeah, he was actually like, I left in 2000, and we can talk, I'll, I'll tell you why I left. So when I, um, I was... Uh, in the early, late 90s, I was... Basically, I was approaching... 29 years old and I was lucky enough to be in a situation where we had done very well as a group and I had made myself some uh, 
I had done very well and I was fortunate to be paid well. I hadn't made never work again kind of money, but I had done well enough that I didn't really need to worry about a job. And uh, what had happened was my daughter, I had my first daughter in my late 20s, and uh, she was born with a heart defect that was corrected at birth by the wonderful doctors at Hospital for Sick Kids here in Toronto. But, you know, you hear people tell stories about how they have a near-death experience and how it kind of changes their lives. Well, I had I had one of those kind of with my family and I kind of looked around. I was in my late 20s and uh, the bank was becoming increasingly bureaucratic. Uh, it wasn't as much fun as it was when I first started. It wasn't the, the RBC Dominion Securities that I had started with. Um, and rightfully so, you know, as the bank became more and more global and big, you can't have, you know, young yahoos just kind of whipping around money. And I and I also realized at the same time that the, the shift towards proprietary trading was was kind of it was it was it was. It was waning because the bank was realizing, yeah, these guys might make us a lot of money, but the headline risk of them doing something wrong or the headline risk of them being on the other side of our client is much greater. So it was it was becoming less fun. And then combine that with my daughter. I said, oh, that's it. So in 2000, early 2000, I decided to kind of hang up the skates and uh, go and just and I quit. And I said I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but uh, I was going to take some time off and think about it. And I, uh, I started to think, uh, I went home, spent some time with my new daughter, and, uh, and as, as the time went on, I thought to myself, well, you know what, I'm going to start trading for myself, and uh, if I, you know, if I can uh, make a living trading, uh, so be it, that'd be great. And uh, I started that, that was in 2000, and uh, I did that for the next 18 years. Me and another guy from RBC quit, he also quit, and we just traded our own account for those kind of next 18 years. Not a bad time to ring the register too when it comes to being an equity market professional, you know, 2000, like that's, you know, making the top within a few months there. <laughs> well, that, that That's correct. I kind of laugh and say that I wanted to be like Michael Jordan after, um, you know, swishing the basket for the, uh, the Bulls there, the three-pointers to win the game. Uh, and let's hope, though, that now that I'm back at uh, now that I've got a job again, it's not like me coming back and playing for the Wizards or whatever it was that he was. <laughs> well, just make sure you let us all know if you're ever going to change roles so we can all get short spoos or whatever we need to do. That's right. <laughs> so That's now right. you are at East West Investment Management and you're the market strategist. That's correct. So while I was on my own, I started writing this uh, newsletter and it was the Macro Tourist. And it started out as, uh, you know, they always say that traders should uh, keep a journal. So I, I actually had started it. It was purely for myself. I wrote down to kind of clarify my thoughts, to think about uh, what, I, what I really believed in and to kind of make it clear in my head. And uh, I, I put it up on the net and every now and then somebody would come up to me and ask me, oh, you know, one of my pals and say, what do you think of the market? And I'd start telling him about it and then I'd say, you know what, why don't you just read what I posted? And I, and I gave out this, uh, the URL to him, to these people. And, and I never really expected it to, to go anywhere. It was just, it was purely just kind of on a lark that I did this thing. And next thing I know, I would go downtown Toronto and I would meet people and they go, oh, I read your stuff. It's really funny and I enjoy it and stuff. And I realized that there was something there. And uh, it also, as I did it a little more, I realized there was huge benefits to being able to phone up people and talk to people and other people would you know, be communicating and giving me their ideas and sharing research and stuff. So I started this macro tourist, um, I don't know, it was like, 2016 and and started writing it and uh it, it just developed and now it's got quite the little following and uh, i kind of uh 
I laugh and I call myself the uh, the playboy of financial newsletters. <laughs> everyone says everyone says they're subscribing for the articles, but we all know they're just looking at the pictures. Um, you know, I try to make a funny picture on every episode and or every post and and make it so people enjoy themselves. And I think it's good too to point out that you know it really does read. It doesn't read like you're trying to sell something or you know you've got the next hot idea. You know, a lot of the stuff that you post is very sort of well. You know, what am I wrong about? You know, this is sort of how I see it, and this looks like it could be an opportunity. What am I missing? You know, what what is already in the price as opposed to a potential? You know. Uh, catalyst, you know, it, it, it's it's not what you would consider most investment newsletters to be, and and it really is valuable for that. It reads, like you said, more like a trading journal than it reads like, you know, someone trying to hawk a, a certain outcome. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I really try hard to not, uh, like, I have no desire to convince anybody of anything, and uh, I always think it's funny when I see guys on Twitter or, or on CNBC arguing with each other. You know, on the desk, we used to have a line that if we, you know, if we disagreed with somebody, we would always say, see you in the machine, meaning that we would have a trade. Right. Like and I always think it's funny when people get upset at, at the fact that they can't convince people of it or that the other guy is such an idiot. If we all agreed, there would be nobody to trade with. Like, I, I just I, I, I have. I have no desire to, to, for you to, to take my opinion. I'm just telling you how I see it. Hopefully it makes you think that's really what I'm trying to accomplish is just make people think and, uh, for them to kind of communicate back what they see. And it's a little more of a discussion than it is for me to try to convince you of anything. Yeah. And I mean, anybody that's, and this is true outside of the markets too, you know, taking a broader look at things, a, a two way conversation and a, and a sort of a back and forth exchange of ideas, as opposed to a lecture is always going to be more engaging for, for both people involved. I think, and, you know, if you, think about um, discussions you have in your personal life or, you know, other professions, you know, whether it's two doctors talking about a patient or whether it's, you know, uh, two people discussing po their their political views or whatever it is, it's, it's always more interesting to, to get a genuine meeting of the minds as opposed to, you know, one person trying to lecture to the other person and, and tell them that they're an idiot for believing whatever thing they happen to believe in whatever realm of life. So, yeah, no, I, I, I you know, anybody listening, I would definitely recommend you check out the Macro Tourist. If you just Google it, you should be able to find it pretty quick. Is the macrotourist.com, yeah. is that the URL? That is yeah. correct. So yeah. check and it's free yeah. and it's I'm not selling anything. It's just it's supposed to and it's fun and hopefully puts a smile on your face. Yeah, it definitely does that uh, with with great frequency. So uh, with that sort of I guess we, we could talk a little bit about what East West does um, before we move on to the to the hard talk because it's it is quite different from you know you just sort of trading your PA. Um, you know you you got that's correct. Money we are. That's correct. We are a portfolio manager and also we have uh, a couple of hedge funds and we do things. It is for Canadians only and uh, just for, just for uh, you know, my I have to always do my disclaimer. Uh, none of these views that I'm going to represent here today represent East West views. And if you want to know what East West is thinking, please go to eastwestfunds.com to check that out. Cool. So uh, with that out of the way, um, it would be great to talk about a couple central banks. Um, you know, I, I think we've seen a, a pretty big shift in how the Fed is orienting in itself. Um, one of the biggest hawks on the committee today just came out and said, oh, we need to pause on rates after a number of people on the committee have said that. Um, so the Fed is clearly worried about treading too heavily here. Um, how have you sort of looked at, at the, the pivot we've undergone from you know, a, a very solid economy in the US in 2018 and four rate hikes to uh, a sudden 
timidity and great caution from the Federal Reserve dating back. Probably the pivot started in late December. Well, yeah. I, I So for me, I look at it, There's there's been kind of, it's, it's an unfolded this way. On October 3rd, Jay Powell came out and said we were a long way from neutral. And I think that that was a big mistake. And in and, and that, if you look at the top in the crude oil market, you go look at the top in equities, you go look at the top in or the low in credit spreads. It was basically almost to the day he, he top ticked it. And I think at that point he had indicated that he'd gone too far. I think he basically just hiked kind of verbally by doing that, and he hiked into the next recession is what I'm thinking. Now, the question is, the market figured it out. It sniffed out the, the slowdown that was coming, and it sold off. During this whole period when it was selling off, he seemed to be tone deaf. He just kind of sat there, said no. You know, he made a couple blunders in terms of the, the balance sheet. It's on autopilot. He seemed to be with every time that Trump kind of got more and more vocal. He got he got more and more tight fisted in terms of not saying anything. And he was given lots of chances to, to kind of appease the market and he refused to do so. And it, it kind of came to a head with the hike, you know, in December, where we now see the minutes that they were actually quite dovish. Yet the kind of when he right or at least that's how the minutes read we don't you know th there is some spin in those minutes we can be assured how how much spin is anyone's guess but I, I think it does it is worth noting that those minutes were produced long after the fact and they did have the ability to go go in and make those minutes sound more dovish if they chose to do so we of course don't know if that's what they did but it's probably a reasonable assumption that's right but didn't Powell at one point say that he didn't believe in that now it's always like I always joke. I had a post called "There's No Atheists in Foxholes." Like I, <laughs> I, 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 I kind of joked that uh, uh, that he's he's quickly losing his religion in terms of you know his tightness. And and this is what I think is the the at the crux of the matter. Did he does he really believe that inflation is a problem, or was he more worried about a financial asset bubble? So when he did that October third comment. I think that he was looking at the stock market was on wheels. It was hitting new highs. Credit spreads were super low and they had been tightening and the market had kind of almost stuck their you know, fingers in their ears and were saying, nah, 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 we can't hear you. And I think he pushed too far because he wanted the, the kind of the, the, the froth to come off. I think he wanted financial conditions to tighten. Now, I think that the mistake he made was once that occurred, he didn't realize how quickly it would slip the other way. What do you think? I think there is a tendency to make the Fed much more calculated and much more um, pulling at fine strings than in fact they actually are. Um, so, you know, I, I think it would be helpful to talk about what the Fed has said in terms of projections around around their neutral rate. Right. They have basically said in, in September, the uh, federal funds rate projection for the longer run was three, three percent. Right. So if you assume, you know, the way the Fed's model works is the longer run rate is consistent with um, with the long run PCE around two percent, core PCE around two percent. Um, and, uh, you know, low slack, but some slack in the economy to prevent 
excesses of inflation. So just taking those at their face value. You know, we don't have to assume those those projections are correct. We don't have to assume that, you know, that that they are prescient or have some sort of advantage in making those projections. But if we assume, okay, that's where the neutral rate is in their model. And we can talk about the weaknesses of using SEP as a model. There are weaknesses to that, but just taking that as at face value. That means they were 75 basis points below uh, what they would describe as a neutral rate in as of September. You know, so when Powell makes those comments in October, is 75 basis points a long way from neutral? Well, I don't know. I think you could make the argument that it is. Um, I don't necessarily think that it is a long way from neutral in some sort of absolute sense. But if we if we take it from that perspective, I don't I think that long way from neutral comment was an overstep and something that doesn't hold up well in the rearview mirror. But at the same time, I also don't see it as something that was radically out of step with the with the message that had come from the September um, meeting and that had been delivered throughout the course of 2018. Oh, oh yeah, no, I completely agree with you there. That that it, it wasn't new. It was just the market was already kind of nervous and expecting that if you go look at the curve was flattening, there was all sorts of market signals that were showing that the, that we, the economy was, might be about to slow. And yet he then came out and said that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, so, I, I think you can definitely make the argument that that, that was an overstep uh, the degree to which it was, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to assign, you know, market outcomes to these sort of policy variables. And I think that's, most true of all it you know the thing that just grinds my gears and you follow me on twitter so you know how strongly i feel about this is the discussion of the balance sheet and how roll-off is going to continue and the mechanics of how roll-off works and the effects it has on on money markets and so on and so forth it just drives me nuts when people ascribe any stock market move to the evolution of the Fed's balance sheet and the projection for the evolution of the Fed's balance sheet. So, you know, I, I think it's it's been super interesting to see people talk about how, you know, the same sort of folks were saying in October to December, the balance sheet is the problem, the balance sheet is the problem, the balance sheet is the problem, the balance sheet is the problem. Now, since the end of December, we've seen the FOMC, Powell, the whole bunch, pivot to more a more dovish stance but they've done it through the project their per personal projections around the path of interest rates at no point has the balance sheet you know slowing the roll off of the balance sheet in the near term ever been discussed by a member of the FOMC in public and nor should it because that's what they've said they're going to do and you know we we've seen a couple of comments say well if we needed to significantly ease to to accommodate economic growth because of a recession the implication being because of a reception, recession well, you know, then, of course, we can talk about the balance sheet. But but in terms of near term policy moves, nobody said we need to s discuss the balance sheet. And yet, you know, markets have reacted very favorably to the rate policy guidance and people say, oh, well, he caved on the balance sheet and, and he didn't. <laughs> so I get very frustrated about that. Um, what, what, what's your take on, on the balance sheet and, and that dynamic? Well, I, I'm not sure I agree with you that it, it has as little effect on the economy and especially markets. But I do agree that he didn't cave on the balance sheet and that they shouldn't be kind of messing with it too much. Like, I don't think that every single tick in the market, they should be going and changing uh, kind of their, you know, their policy path for the balance sheet reduction. So to some extent, I get it that they should just put that on, you know, autopilot and let it go off until there's a real problem. Um, but I just think that he was very, very... Um, 
kind of tone deaf is the word I use because the market was showing you the, the yield curve was telling you there's a million signs, you know, oil had gone from 60 bucks down to 45. It, there was all sorts of kind of market things that were saying that there was a problem. And yet he was just kind of like, nope, everything's good. The economy's great. There's no need to do anything. Everything's, you know, on track. And that to me was what the, what was the real problem. And, uh, I kind of wonder, you know, whether this cave that he did in terms of this recent, uh, you know, when he got on stage there with Bernanke and Yellen and completely caved and completely gave the market what they wanted, whether he, I, I thought it was kind of foolish because at that point he'd almost taken all the pain. The market had already gone down. Things were stabilizing. I, I, I don't know what he's trying to accomplish. And I, and I, and I think he's, uh, suffering a little from rookie kind of Fed, you know, chairman mistake, not realizing that every single one of his comments and every single one of his nuanced kind of uh, uh, shifts are going to be interpreted and extrapolated by the market. Yeah, and you do see that with with new Fed chairs. I mean, the the best example I think was Chair Yellen. I think it was in her second press conference as chair. She used a specific phrase, and I, I wish I had this in front of me. I'm, I'm not going to subject our, our listeners to me typing away and trying to find it in my notes. But but Cherry Ellen had during a press conference, it was a smaller and and less persistent um, shift in tone or or you know issue. But you know stocks plunged when she said it, and she had to come out and clarify a week later what she actually meant. You know, so I I do think there is lots of precedent for a new Fed chair understanding how exactly markets are going to read their tone, their language, their, you know, the tone of the overall FOMC, as opposed to, you know, doing, you know, reading it the way that the Fed chair thinks they're going to write it. So, but the um, thing, I, I, I sorry, do think, go ahead, go ahead. No, okay. No, so I was going to say though, do you, the question is, is this Fed chairman, is, is Powell different than Yellen and Bernanke in that, does he have a different goal when it comes to financial markets? And this is one of the, you know one of the pieces that I wrote suggested that whereas Yellen and Bernanke wanted to kind of make a Fed put, meaning that they wanted to support the markets whenever they went down, I'm almost looking at Powell a little differently. I'm looking at it in that he's more interested in preventing the next bubble. Like, I think he looks at the market and he says, 2008 was a disaster. It caused a lot of pain in our economy. It caused a lot of pain in the markets. And we're still kind of, you know, dealing with the aftermath of it. I don't want another 2008 on my watch. And the best way to do that is to stop the bubble before it starts. So to me, this was a very different tone than both Yellen and Bernanke took. Yellen especially, it just seemed like she wanted to continue goosing it along, and that was that. Was that. Um, so the question I have to you is, do you think that Powell is truly like raising rates? I hear this stuff about he's raising rates because he's worried or he wants ammo to lower them in the future. That is the, like, oh, that's like I just think that's the dumbest comment in the world. Like he, yeah, that's complete yeah, nonsense. He, and, and the only question is, there's no doubt that he's been more hawkish than, let's just say, the market and the rest of the world has wanted. Would you, would you agree with that? I, like, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I like, think that's, I think that's true. I, I, I would just back up to, to a point you made, you know, referring to a Fed put. I, I think it's really hard 
to separate how the Fed operates uh, with respect to the real economy from how they operate with respect to the financial markets economy. And it's easy to conflate Fed shifts to a more dovish tone or a more hawkish tone with respect to the real economy, with what they're seeing with respect to the real economy, and interpret that as, oh, well, they're putting a floor or a, or a cap on, on stock prices or whatever the asset in question may be. And the reason I don't see it as a straightforward thing with regards to the asset markets and that it's more complicated is because their, well, first off, their mandate is to the real economy. Second, financial markets are a leading indicator, sometimes very prescient, sometimes not at all prescient, of the real economy. So if stock prices are dropping, the Fed has to look at that and say, okay, what is coming down the pike based on this information from a forward-looking asset? They cannot just say, the stock market doesn't know what it's talking about, it contains no information, and I'm going to ignore it. No, but don't you, so you, think, you're Powell, but a, don't you think Powell was, was taking more of that tone than uh, Yellen and Bernanke did? Don't, would you not? I, I think the only the only reason I think that's the case is because we are later and further along in the economic cycle. I don't think that the I think that at a number of different points in Yellen's uh, chair uh, term, in Yellen's term as chair of the Federal Reserve, I think she drew lots of attention to the fact that you know leverage is relatively high in the corporate sector you know we're keeping an eye on you know financial liquidity you know 20, people forget 2016 was an outright panic in a lot of sectors and the fed took notice of that and they and they paid attention to it and you know so i i i you know with the balance of um how much powell or yellen are focused on the you know, the, the term my friend Mark Dow uses is avalanche patrol, right? Making sure that the economy and the financial markets don't get overheated to the point that we risk what happened in 2008 repeating itself. I think the Fed has been on avalanche patrol, certainly for the entirety of, of Yellen's term um, and into Powell's term as well. Now, Powell may be more aggressive in that mandate and may be using rates policy to pursue that mandate in a way that, that Yellen did in a much more tempered way. Um, but I, I think you can explain that mostly with the fact that the economy has evolved and tightened significantly since Yellen's term. Okay, but I, I, I think that's a great line, avalanche patrol. But I would argue that, that Powell is much more aggressive on the avalanche patrol and that he is more interested in uh, separating the financial economy from the real economy. And if you go look at the, all the things that he said, I, I, I really truly believe he's does not want the market to go higher. Like I, I think that he's more worried about the stock market going up than inflation. Because let's face it, there is no inflation. There, like it's really, well, at least. For, I say that, and I'm going to get all the tinfoil hat guys telling me how the, the no, shadow we're not, line. we're not doing yeah. shadow stats here. No, that's not. <laughs> we can just skip right past that. But um, but I, I really think that the inflation, at least by the, how they measure it, is, is non-existent. The PCE has been undershooting for the past the entire decade. They have lots of room. It's not— Well, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not non-existent. It is 
well within their what they define as price stability and if anything it is definitely shaded to the downside and more importantly you know from an ngdp level targeting perspective which is not the framework they use but is a valid argument to make you know core pc has undershot for a very long time and by quite a dramatic amount so i think it's totally reasonable to say that inflation is not something the fed's super concerned about you know leading indicators for inflation i i see a three percent core pc or core cpi which equates to roughly 2.5 to 2.7 percent core pce depending on how you model it i see that as a pretty reasonable forecast um at you know getting a 2.5 percent core core cpi print at some point in the next 18 months i think that's reasonable but again that is not inflation out of control and not a radical departure from the fed's uh, mandate for price stability um so you know i i totally agree with you that that their their management is not focused on containing inflation that currently exists there they are more worried about inflation that might rear its head and I think you can definitely make the case, and a lot of my more left-leaning friends do make the case, and quite convincingly, that they're wrong to be focusing on inflation to the degree they have when it does not appear that we've hit full employment yet. So I think that the Fed is, is targeting financial conditions and, and not by selling a put, not by trying to you know, support the market, but by trying to make, maintain it so it doesn't create another bubble, which then they are trying to mop up like 2008. So I think Powell is a, definitely a different animal than both Yellen and Bernanke. And I, I'm, when you talk about the recent moves, I'm confused by his uh, kind of the, the – his flip-flopping and basically giving the market what they wanted because to me he had already taken all the pain and caused the repricing that he wanted or at least that I think he wanted lower and then he flip-flopped and now we're in the process of everything running straight back up so well I, I mean I, is, is it a fed call or is it a fed caller yeah well that's what I'm I guess you're right it is, is it, like I think that he was trying to restrike the put lower and if you go look at what he said, there was numerous times that he tried to, you know, convince the market that it wasn't going to be something where they were going to he was going to run to their rescue. And yet it, it was kind of surprising to me that after, uh, you know, that one month of bad markets that he was so quick to, to pull the trigger and to actually flip flop. Like I'm, I'm actually quite surprised. And uh, although, well, I mean, I, I think it bears in mind though that the retreat that we saw in the S and P 500, for instance, was within a few basis points of 20%. By any standard definition, that is a significant retreat in stock prices, right? That is not a small move in the market where he suddenly goes, oh no, I got, I got to keep prices back up again. That is 20% doesn't happen that often. So. You know, 20% drawdowns. We actually define a bear market as a 20% move from open a closing high to to the the low um, for a, a move downwards. So, but but it had already bottomed. He had sent Williams out to try to you know fix things a little bit. It had already bottomed and settled down. He didn't need to be as dovish as he was. Well, so I actually think he's made another mistake because I I contend that given the rise, I I suspect that we're going to see the old hawkish Powell back. Well, we, we may, it may the, be the case, but I, I guess the, 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 this comes back to sort of what I was saying earlier with regards to ascribing too much plan and, and micromanagement to the Fed. Um, you know, it's easier to, to 
create those narratives when you're sitting and watching prices all day, you know, that's not what the Fed does, right? Like we know for a fact that's not how they think. Um, they are looking at a much more complicated set of variables and moving much slower and often moving at a lag to the market. So, you know, I, I, I think we, we can say that he, you know, under, operating under the assumption that he wanted stock prices to drop. I'm not entirely on board with that, but okay, let's operate under that assumption. I think you can also say, well, you know, he he saw the significant contraction in prices and the, and the easing off of the financial economy, and now he doesn't want things to get so bad that the real economy is threatened. And so far, we haven't seen a lot of evidence that the real economy is doing any worse than it would under the current global economic slowdown that has nothing to do with the Fed. Um, and, you know, maybe that, that's the other thing. We've gotten new information from the rest of the world over, over the last few months that suggests that global activity way beyond the Fed's ability to, to manage things is slowing. And that wasn't necessarily the case in September or October. Right. So I, I just to me, I would have either panicked earlier or not panicked. To me, he was almost through the worst of it. I don't see why he had to panic, and I think he, he did himself a lot of he, – he hurt his credibility by with his comments that he made on that Friday uh, with Yellen and Bernanke on stage. That That's how I see it, and uh, maybe, maybe I am sitting around looking at every squiggle a little too much and saying, you know, that he's reacting to this. And, and, and meanwhile, he's just – they're just sitting there making policy and watching as the market guys take things like up and down. Like it's – it was crazy. The market – market went from pricing in like two hikes in 2019 back to like cuts and then back to even within a sp space of what two weeks like th those last two weeks of December that like, to me crazy. is a good argument that that markets create opportunity and that just assuming that the world is going to play out the way markets think it will is a really bad assumption. <laughs> oh, I completely agree. And everyone always says, oh, you know, Stanley Druckenmiller said this or, or you know, or some other guru says this. How many times do we see these guys get these big guys get stuff wrong all the time? And that's one of the things that I love to point out is don't be afraid to go against these guys. Like hedge funds have been getting hammered and they again had another bad year. And, and the supposed gurus that you see on TV, they don't know any better than a lot of us. And, and especially in this day and age with the world changing so fast and with the, with the advent of algos and all these computerized trading, the world is completely different and uh, different opinions. And everyone should always be kind of making their own decisions. And not only that, just because you see some, but some supposed guru telling you something, be very weary of it. Like it's, it's just like, it's they're wary of it too. Um, yeah. <laughs> because weary and wary. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it, a lot of times these guys are getting it wrong. Switching gears a little bit. Uh, you had expressed an interest in talking about, uh, modern monetary theory, MMT, which is, uh, really big in a lot of headlines right now in, in political and economic circles in the States. Um, I think the same, it, it's probably getting some attention in Canada too, although from a slightly different perspective, um, it would be great to talk about that a little bit with you. Sure, let's do it. So, George, I must say, I, I, before we go any further, I just want to say hats off to you because you are like openly out of the closet and up, you say good things about MMT. And it's hard to, in this day and age with all these hard money guys, they just go bananas on Twitter on you. So I, I kind of think like it's unbelievable that you're openly advocating MMT at times. Like I'm shocked. Well, 
you know, I mean, you just got to go with what you think is the best way to explain the world, right? I, like, I don't yeah. know. I, I will say, like, the hard money guys have been really wrong for about a decade now and are showing no signs of turning around. So, you know, I, I, it's easier to hold these positions with that in mind than it would be if, if things had played out differently over the post-crisis period. So what is MMT? So, George, why don't you – yeah, I was going to say, why don't you tell everyone what it is? Because I know when I first started hearing about it, you know, a year or two ago, I actually reached out to you and asked for some kind of context and, uh, like, to get a feel for it. And I think you could probably explain it better than anyone else. So why don't you go ahead and tell us? Okay, so modern monetary theory is a school of thought within economics that has developed, or it's, it's what you would call a heterodox school of economic theory. It's, it's not consistent with what people would describe as the mainstream. There are a lot of precepts and a lot of sort of theories that come out of MMT, and it can get really complicated. The most important thing, I think, and the thing that is really important to just intuitively understand is that MMT says that the government is the one that issues money and therefore the government does not face a hard budget constraint of any kind. Now, that does not mean that the government does not have consequences that come from spending or deficits and that, the, that those do not have an economic impact. They do, and that is really important to stress. Nobody who is actually a proponent of MMT would ever say under any circumstances that the government's desired spending level and the size of the deficit have no impact at all on the broader economy. They absolutely do. Rather, what MMT would say is, do not worry about the so-called financing of government spending. Government spending finances itself. The government can print money in a sovereign currency unit and it is easily able to do so. It's done so for a long period of time in the United States. This The, the precepts of this date back uh, roughly to the 1940s or 1950s. Um, deficits can be run indefinitely with side effects at very high levels that never face a real budget constraint like a household or a business that must go and borrow money from someone else. The government, when it, cr when it runs a deficit, it is creating money. Okay, so what are the downsides? There are downsides to running very large deficits and creating very large demand for goods and services by deficit spending or by high, high government spending in general. The, the consequence that is most important and the one that, that we need to think about in a modern market economy, which we have, and no, one's, no one in, in the MMT world really is proposing changing um, away from a market economy, the constraint is inflation. If inflation is high, the government has less flexibility to run deficits without bad stuff, i.e. more inflation happening. That is, inflation is not good. Uh, high, high degrees of inflation, for instance, let's just pull a number out of the air, 10%, uh, something we haven't seen in over a generation in, in the United States. Um, that is not a good thing. We don't want high inflation. At the same time, if we have other problems in society, for instance, low resource utilization in labor markets, why should we be worried about the government going broke if it doesn't have a financing constraint and inflation is low? And so that combination of, of ideas, government finances its own spending and inflation is its constraint, is a very powerful lens to view modern developed market economies through and it really blows out of the water a lot of the arguments around we need to cut spending or raise taxes because the deficit is some large number well 
what does that mean? Inflation's low, so who cares? And and that is is sort of why I think MMT is having the moment it's having right now is a, is a, is people are realizing that that's a pretty powerful set of communications to to give, and and ideas to hold. And it's so hard for people to to wrap their mind around the idea that they shouldn't be worried about the government paying it back. And that's going to be your pushback. They inevitably, everyone says, but, but, but that doesn't make any sense. How, how can the government spend without having to put it back, put like pay it back? And I, I, I try really hard to, to talk about what is instead of what should be. And so I, I often keep my feelings about what I think a, like either a central bank or a, a government should do to myself. I figure it doesn't really help anyone. You know, there's enough people on Twitter or on the internet yelling at each other. I, they don't need another opinion. I always try to say, well, this is, you know, trade the market you have in front of you, not the one you want, right? Right, absolutely. So, uh, so I, 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 I must say that I am a little more of an MMT than most people. You know, call it the Canadian in me that I run a little more left than a lot of the kind of hard money Wall Street guys that are, that are, that are saying this doesn't make any sense. But I, I think all of that is kind of irrelevant. The question is, what is going to happen going forward? And I think that everyone should realize, whether you like MMT or not, you should get to know what it is and understand it because I think that you're going to find more and more politicians, more and more governments adopting it. And you might think in the long run it's going to create a huge amount of inflation. I've heard that argument that basically you can never trust the government with anything. So the moment they start, you know, being allowed to go spend willy nilly, there's just going to be a huge amount of inflation, a huge amount of waste. I get it. I'm sympathetic. Like, you know, Paul Krugman, is he an MMT or not? Um, like, I don't, be... so I stopped reading Krugman super regularly quite some years ago. I, I find yeah. Krugman to be a very talented economist who often gets over his skis and he's, he's it, not to say that no one should read him or anything like that. Um, I am not sure. I don't think he's, he's on board with the, with the basic precepts. I think he's, he's objected to them certainly to the, uh, he's objected to the sort of MMT maximalism, which has become a little bit more common lately. Yeah, because I find with him, my complaint about him is that he believes stimulus is stimulus and it's all the same. And I, I, I'm completely disagree. And the broken window fallacy to me means everything. Like, I don't believe that going and giving someone a tax cut to go buy a new car is the same as investing in infrastructure. Right. Like, I would think agree about you know, think about you think about bespoke if bespoke, you know, the company decides to go out and have a Christmas party and they borrow you know, a whole bunch of money and they buy free booze and they get the, the, the greatest band ever to come play at the Rolling Stones or somebody like that come play it. You know, it, it creates short term stimulus, but it doesn't actually do anything good in the long run. That money is gone. Yeah. So, so whereas I, I think I think the, the way I would angle this back towards MMT is I, I think I agree with all that. One of the benefits of MMT is that you can say, okay, if if inflation is not really the constraint we need to worry about, then we can put into or sorry, if, if um, excuse me, if the level of the government deficit in a period of low inflation is not what we need to worry about, then we can put into place large what look like extraordinarily expensive programs that have a very positive effect on the overall economy in terms of a demand side impact, but are effectively automatic stabilizers. And the jobs guarantee is really the perfect expression of this. So 
most economists who are into MMT point to the jobs guarantee as a really, really MMT-centric program. The idea is anybody that wants a job can get one at a living wage. Anybody. Doesn't matter what your skill level is, doesn't matter. We will find something for you to do, and Lord knows there's a lot we can do in, in our day and age to improve the world, right? Whether it's building infrastructure, whether it's providing services, you know, there's a huge range of different things that, that can be done. And the benefit of that program is that when the private economy starts to unravel, there is still employment available for people. Of course, the program will get more expensive during a recession because presumably more people will enter the, the rules of the job guarantee and um, that that will maintain demand. They will continue to receive a paycheck. They will continue to be attached to the labor market in a way that you can't do you know, with unemployment insurance, for instance. Unemployment insurance is gives you, at least at the margin, some incentive to stay out of the labor market until you get back to your old job. Well, that's not true of a jobs guarantee. You're staying engaged with, with people, you're staying engaged with a skill set, you might be learning a new skill set, you're um, attached and engaged and doing stuff. And that is really important. And I think that, that jobs guarantee aspect, when you compare it to something like universal basic income, a negative income tax of some kind, um, you know, various in earned income tax credit programs that are very popular in Western economies, and you go on and on and on and on. Um, the the advantage of the jobs guarantee is or the, the, the jobs guarantee is is something that MMT says okay we can do this and then you look at the ask the the benefits of the jobs guarantee and it says okay you're going to stay attached to the labor market you're going to continue earning a wage so there's no hysteresis there's or there's less hysteresis and there's still some demand for you to be able to exercise and going and buying stuff um, and maintaining the private economy and furthermore, we get public goods of various kinds, whether it's cheaper childcare, um, more accessible childcare, you know, more teachers, more um, people to build infrastructure, whatever the case may be. So, you know, that that kind of idea, and you know, it's it's not to say that oh well, if we just had a you know followed MMT principles and a jobs guarantee, everything would be great and we would never have another problem again. That's absolutely not what anyone argues. Um, I think what what an MMT oriented economist or economic thinker would say is well, you know, we can do better. Right. We can we can do better. Well, and I think that one of the things to realize is that in during the Obama administration, if we think back to the 2008 crisis, sure, there was some stimulus that came out, you know, some tax cuts and, and, and stuff in the in the days immediately preceding the, the problems. But then the next six years, if you go look at the federal government, the discretionary spending, not the mandatory spending the discretionary spending actually dropped and it never grew by as little as during that uh, is obama's administration so everyone always says oh no this guy he spent and he created this huge deficit no actually he didn't the tea party made it so that there was fiscal contraction and this was occurring at a time when when already the private sector was was contracting itself so it was the time for the government to be going the other way and to actually be spending not contracting and yet the the exact opposite happened and that's why we had the extreme monetary stimulus that we had was because you know we were trying to suck and blow at the same yeah. time the, I, th like, I think it, 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 it's it, interesting like you know federal employment for the you know the federal employment record peak was during the 1990 uh, census there were 3.4 million people employed by the federal government the federal government then reduced payrolls to around 27 2.7 2.8 
seven and a half million. Uh, and that was kind of where things stood other than the censuses from the late 1990s through the immediate uh, pre-recession period. For, so, you know, again, just to run through that mid threes down to two sevens, and then um, employment ticked up a little bit to the 2.9 million area. And then it fell again back to 2.7 million. So this idea that, yeah. you know, there's an ever growing number of federal employees and, you know, like the government just keeps growing and growing and growing. And it, 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 it's not, it's not an accurate reflection of the history. Now, of course, mandatory spending has grown dramatically because of demographics and there's a whole discussion there, but I, it's, yeah, it's like the, the same the, in the, Europe, the idea that you would try to cut into a recession and, uh, you know, do austerity is just, it's, it's mind boggling. Like it's, it's, well, it's just, you know, the only reason you would do it is if you thought John Maynard Keynes didn't know what he was talking about and never had a good idea in his yeah. life. <laughs> so I, I just, I think that, um, what we're going to see going forward is, uh, an adoption as people realize, and as we kind of reflect back at this, at the policies that have, that we've tried, which is, I think cutting fiscal and doing extreme monetary policy, these have failed. They just don't work. The velocity collapses as you do more extreme, you know, monetary stimulus. So therefore, I think you're going to see a huge, you know, adoption. And we already saw Howard Dean. Did you see Howard Dean came out and said something about MMT, like uh, Steph Stephanie Kelton, like he, he he's he's adopting it, and he's considered generally a fiscal conservative amongst the Democrats, is he not? Yeah, I mean, the thing about I, I think the thing about that that particular announcement is that you're seeing more mainstream um, acceptance of these ideas. And it, you know, just to just to return to what actually is as opposed to what ought to be, I mean, if you look at how the federal government has operated since at least the mid 2000s, maybe a lot earlier than that, it's been run on MMT principles. We've we've, you know, passed large tax cuts. Uh, we've passed uh, emergency spending. Um, during the recession, there was there was some stimulus. We've passed, um, we you know, entitlement spending um, has continued to grow. You know, military spending, you know, the, uh, which is a total third rail politically, but it's continued to surge. And yet, there's been no crisis in, of confidence in American government uh, debt levels or American deficits. Uh, U.S. Treasuries are still and will continue to be for the near term and medium term certainly and longer term likely the reserve asset of the global economy and you know I, like that's 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 the history that's what's happened that is absolutely impossible to argue with in terms of the outcomes so why why should we operate under a framework that says no all of that's wrong that didn't happen and actually deficits are going to do this totally different thing from what they actually did and so that that honestly is the biggest thing for me in terms of why MMT started to make sense and sort of became something I was interested in and a framework to use for how a modern fiat economy works. The history is very one-sided here. The history is that MMT works. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you say that on Twitter, do you just get yelled at like just incessantly? I, you know, if, if someone's just going to yell at me, I pretty much just mute them and move on and they can yell all they want. Um, you know, I, most of the people that I engage with on Twitter are pretty thoughtful folks. And there are a lot of them on Twitter in terms of thoughtful, you know, reasonable people. Um, so, you know, I... Do you find do you do you find that there's been a shift of more acceptance amongst uh, for MMT? Oh, no question. 
Like no question at all. And yeah. you know, I, I think I think it can go too far. You know, so for instance, there are some folks in the MMT world who think that the Fed should never have interest rates above zero and that all management of the economy should take place through um, macroprudential tools around uh, financial markets leverage and uh, fiscal demand management. And I think that's taking things a lot too far. Um, but the the critique, on the other hand, of, of, of rates-based management of the economy, which is what we've essentially tried to do for the past 30 years, is that you leave a lot of people behind. And that seems to be, you know, if not definitely provable, then certainly um, something that is worth considering in the past um, 30 years. If you look at the, the hollowing out of the economy in terms of the distribution of income, you know, more low income earners, more high income earners and fewer people in the middle. If you look at um, inflation, you know, being and, and unemployment rates and slack in the economy has been relatively persistent for over a generation now. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's convincing to say, well, maybe maybe we should think about doing things a little bit differently. And of course, there would be costs and you know negative things associated with that. Um, but but at the end of the day, you know, just to reiterate, the core the core thing I think about when I think MMT is the government issues its own currency and it does not have a budget constraint, and inflation is its constraint. And if you take those two principles and you believe those two principles, and I certainly do, I think the history hold bears them bears them a lot of truth, then if that's the case, you think about how the government should operate a little bit differently. Right. So now the real question I have for you is, let's assume that the world is headed this way. Because I every signal I see is or sign I see is that more and more people are accepting this kind of thought process and this is where we're headed. How do you change your portfolio? Where do you go and invest? And how do you set yourself up for this shift that's going to occur if if mmt type because i don't know if the world's ready for a full-on mmt but i do believe that there we're going to see more and more mmt type kind of policies going forward and if that if that happens how, what do you think is going to happen to markets how do you set yourself up for it uh, I think it would be negative for the dollar. I don't think it would necessarily mean the collapse of the dollar, but I think all else equal, the dollar would be would be less strong. Um, I think that um, you would see higher interest rates as well, for sure. So treasuries would, if, if inflation is going to go from, let's say, one and three quarters core PCE most years to... 3% most years. I mean, that's that's 125 basis points worth of premium. And if the absolute level of inflation goes up, then the risk premiums around inflation should probably go up as well. So it would be negative for bond prices. You won't, you won't find me arguing otherwise, but maybe that's not such a bad thing. Um, if what it means is you've got a lot more people employed, you've got um, more persistent and consistent aggregate demand. Um, if it means that you don't have to move interest rates around as much um, at the Federal Reserve. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think it would basically look like, you know, what do you do when an economy is going to have higher aggregate demand, higher, probably like likely due to hysteresis effects, higher uh, productivity, higher wage growth, um, a higher labor share of income um, and, you know, a, a uh, lower real interest rates over time. Uh, you're going to see break-evens wider, bond prices lower, and probably the currency is going to sell off. And you know that all of that that makes pretty good sense. And frankly, wouldn't be the end of the world given that the real effective exchange rate for the U.S. dollar is basically at 20-year highs right now. 
I, I completely agree. And that's why one of the, my big beliefs is that eventually the steepener is going to be the trade. Yeah. That, yeah. Like and the, I mean, if, and if you think we're headed into a recession, a steepener is going to work anyways, because uh, the, people think that the flattening of the yield curve is, is what happens ahead of a recession. Well, it, it happens ahead of a recession, but when the recession's right around the corner, that's when you see a real steepener um, because uh, long-term rates are much less effective at responding to Fed policy than the, the, the front of the curve. So anyhow, um, I, I, yeah, I, I think, I think the trade is lower bond prices, lower dollar, and, um, probably, I mean, all else equal, uh, higher returns on capital and, um, you know, higher, uh, activity levels in the United States, which, which opens up, um, you know, more room for entrepreneurialism and for, um, a different, corporate sector that we currently see. So, you know, something like a Facebook or a Google doesn't work as well in an MMT world, um, you know, or a utility company um, where they're the only growth available. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think I think you see the industrial economy perform a lot better. You see the services economy perform a lot better. Um, but maybe all that's completely wrong. I have no idea. That's just sort of what I would think off the seat of my pants, though. But I, I think it's actually the question to ask because I think that we're going to see a shift in policies. And ultimately, I, I think that the only way as we get more and more debt and as we try this this solution of lower and lower rates and, and that just kind of, you know, keep getting worse and worse in terms of like Japanification of all interest rates. I think that, that eventually people are going to realize that a combination of low interest rates, but actually with some fiscal spending or investing is where we're headed. And I agree with you. I'm not sure if it's going to be uh, MMT like you kind of you've you're much more up to speed on what it looks like and all the reasons for it. But I kind of look at the bigger picture and I say to myself, this is the way that the world is headed. The world is headed towards more fiscal spending from governments. And what that's going to mean is it's going to mean higher interest rates in the, especially at the long end. With that, we're going to have to wrap it up. But before we do, we always do our trading rich and trading cheap segment. So um, just I'm going to throw some stuff out to you and you're going to tell me whether you think it's trading rich, whether it's overvalued or trading cheap, undervalued. Um, so uh, a little bit of explanation would be great, too. So um, the Canadian dollar and the Canadian economy, what do you think? Trading rich or trading cheap? It's trading cheap. Uh, we, uh, I saw somebody that said, I, I've never seen a country commit financial suicide before, but Canada sure is trying. And uh, that's been kind of the last year with Trudeau with his terrible, our Prime Minister uh, Trudeau with his terrible policies for the getting our oil out of our kind of trapped in Alberta. Um, I think that the worst of the of, of the bad news is already in in terms of the, those uh, policies. I suspect that he's finally waking up. He's making some changes. I see that they've uh, he, I was kind of laughing the other day. I saw an NDP leader of uh, of Alberta. And NDP is the is the classic left wing party in Canada for our American. Listeners. That's right. And, and Justin Trudeau is a member yeah. of the liberal or liberal party, which is center left, I think is the best way to describe liberals. That's right. Uh, and uh, she actually was buying train cars to to uh, ship the tr ship the oil or the bitumen d down to uh, the states, and uh, that's kind of like uh, I don't know. Um 
but you pick some socialist in and in, in embracing capitalism full heartedly to to fix a problem. And I think we've seen the worst for Canada in terms of the oil. I am a little worried about the real estate market, but I think on the whole, we're much more of an oil market than than people realize. And I suspect that we've seen the worst. Uh, that actually segues nicely into my next question, which is with respect to the Canadian real estate market. So I, I don't think there's any argument that the Canadian real estate market is trading rich, uh, which you know I, I think would be a rather boring question. Instead, what I'm going to ask you is whether the Canadian real estate doom narrative, i.e., unsustainable, everything is going to crash, this is the end. Um, do you think that narrative is trading rich or trading cheap? I would just add before we we you answer that. Um, as of the release for December, national home prices are up 2.3% uh, annualized in December and on a three-month, three-month basis, which is um, how I like to look at them, they are, uh, call it 4% um, annualized. So have pulled back, but in terms of growth, but are, are not looking collapsy at the, at the moment. Uh, that doom narrative is traded rich and it continues to trade rich. Um, I've kind of laughed at all that the American hedge fund managers that have that experienced 2008 and said, oh, the exact same thing is going to happen to Canada. And there's a big difference between Canada and the U.S. in terms of you guys are the reserve currency. And when the, was a, there was a kind of a crisis, uh, when credit contracted, in uh, in the real estate market causing kind of a vicious feedback loop it actually caused the dollar to go up because there was less dollars created and therefore they started buying dollars which made everything which made contract uh, credit contract even more so it fed upon itself canada if if we have a problem with our real estate market and if, let's imagine that uh, the a selling you know starts to pick up they are just going to let the currency go so it, it, it can be offset much more easily. So it's not that I am bullish on Canadian real estate by any means. We are, you know, we've been one of the best performing real estate markets in the world. Um, now, having said that, I will tell you something. I have another friend that manages uh, properties. He's a big, huge uh, property manager. And uh, he tells me, I used to be kind of bearish and every time I would tell him, oh, you know, I'm worried about the real estate market, Toronto real estate market. He would say to me, you know, have you ever gone to Paris or to London or to Singapore and looked at the prices? And, and I'm not trying to compare Toronto to those places because I understand full well that those are world class places that are the elite of the elite. But as Toronto has become much more kind of of a global kind of city that competes on that level. I wouldn't say that there were anywhere near the top, but we compete on that level. Our real estate prices has gone up, but it's to reflect this kind of, you know, increased wealth or increased stature as more and more foreigners want to come and live here. So I have another friend that was uh, that was a hedge fund manager from South Africa. His, his daughter got married to a Canadian. He came here and he said, "I was going, I was going, I, I was going, expecting to see this overpriced housing market, this crazy prices." I got here and I was like, "This isn't that bad." He was shocked <laughs> at that how cheap it was. Yeah, well, Toronto is a wonderful place, and it's it's also worth saying to uh, for people that aren't familiar with the Canadian economy that Toronto is is like what. Uh, 80, no, 75% of the Canadian economy, maybe 60% uh, is the greater Toronto area. So it's a, it's, it's, it's the world's um, largest country by landmass, but also the world, one of the world's most concentrated in terms of, you know, 
the, the, the geographic networks of economic activity. So very interesting. I, I, I could talk about not, Canadian real estate all day long. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think that ninety percent of Canadians live within uh, hundred kilometers of the border. By the yeah. way, yeah, yeah, that that stat is is definitely correct, and you know, uh, most of those are in the Greater Toronto area, certainly. Um, so anyhow, uh, last question, real quick: uh, active management, trading rich or trading cheap? You spent eighteen years trading your own account and seem to have done okay with it. So clearly, there are opportunities to be had. But does that mean you can scale it into a real active management business, or is is the business that East well, West is in a one that's in terminal decline. I, um, I think that the active versus active passive is, is finally hit a point where it's the day and the sun is going to come for the active managers again. And, and even though we do a lot of passive investing on ETFs, I think that uh, we're, we're hitting a point where just like you see Greenhorn or Greenhorn. Einhorn. Uh, is it Einhorn? Sorry. Einhorn. I'm, I'm mixing his Greenlight Capital with Einhorn. Um, when you see him, you know, a, a classic stock picker having eight or 10 years of uh, underperformance, you know that we're getting towards the end. And the simple fact that you're asking that question probably means to me that it's time for active to well, show. I've been asking on this podcast semi regularly for about two years now and no, no change yet. <laughs> so, anyhow, that's going to be it with Kevin Muir. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. This is a great conversation, man. I always love to hear um you know from a fellow canadian and um you know you had some really interesting thoughts really good discussion so thanks so much for coming on bespokecast well thanks a lot it was a lot of fun Thanks for joining us this week on the BespokeCast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy BespokeCast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.